Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this is the show that helps you care for yourself like you care so well for others. Today, I'm chatting to Tara Brock. I have a kind of mantra that I say to myself, which is simply, don't believe your thoughts. They're real, but they're not true. They're real, they're actually happening. There's electronical activity in your brain and your body's having a reaction to them, but they're a representation of the reality that we're living in. They're not the truth. And so just to challenge it and then open ourselves to something larger is such a gift. Oh, I'm excited. Tara is a psychotherapist and meditation teacher, and she really cleverly combines her Western psychological insights with Eastern spiritual practices. As you'd imagine from someone who looks to Buddhism for guidance, a lot of her work is about freeing ourselves and wider society from suffering. And in the last few years, she's done some really groundbreaking stuff in training psychotherapists to integrate mindfulness into their clinical work. I absolutely adored this chat with Tara. I've been a fan for years. I've read her books. I've worshipped every word. She is so warm and so calming to talk to. And I know that she'll have that same effect on you. I think you'll find her thoughts around compassion, how compassion towards others will actually alleviate our own pain, really beautiful. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, let's do it. This is the show. Hi, Tara. Yeah, lovely to meet you. And just a real bow to what you're doing. Seems like you're really on a great roll, dear. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Tara. That means the world. I wanted to start off the conversation by basically thanking you because I'm such a huge fan of your your books and your podcast and your meditations. And they've they've been such a tonic over the years and been so massively helpful. So I just wanted to start by by saying thank you. It delights me. I'm glad to hear it. So look, Tara, we, we're living through very, very strange times. And, you know, you can wake up and feel great some days and other days the heaviness really hits because we know there's a lot of fear out there, a lot of confusion, divisiveness, etc. How are you personally navigating these times? I've got a lot of grace in my life in the sense that I'm able to isolate and I can do the work I love from home and I haven't gotten sick and my immediate circles have been fine. So on that level, um, it's it hasn't been hugely stressful. I'm an introvert and it helps to stay home. Same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I am also in touch with so many people that are living I mean, it's a traumatized world, Fern. You know, it's it's really a traumatized world with the pandemic globally and with climate change and with so much going on. And so people that already had trauma are triggered and those that haven't are actually feeling it more. And so, of course, my heart and my energies are really engaged in that. And it actually got busier. I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to be traveling and teaching and so on as much. But the online world has been uh, so active and huge. And I've been surprised at how intimate it can be. Yeah, same. I think more than ever, we need real decent, honest conversation and connection because we have all been through something collectively so overwhelming. And it's interesting you know, I was listening to one of your podcasts earlier that was that sort of really got me thinking. And 
I wonder if there is, because, you know, a lot of your work as a, a meditation teacher and an author and a speaker is based on trying to wake up society to compassion. And I wonder if we are in an era where there's, you know, a serious lack of compassion versus other times in history, or if there's always been this sort of lack of com- sort of compassion for ourselves and each other, but we're just more acutely aware of it now due to how we imbibe information. It's a really interesting question, whether how it's changed over time. I can say that my sense is that we have never been at such an extreme in terms of a lack of self-compassion, for one, because the more we get anxious and fearful, actually we turn on ourselves. And with trauma, it's the worst. Anybody that has been traumatized, first of all, feels broken and flawed because of the trauma. But then their coping strategies, which are usually addictive behaviors and numbing and dissociating, make make people that feel that are traumatized feel uh, really damaged goods. And it's very, very painful, the level of self-hatred or self-doubt. But I think it goes for all of us that, um, you know, this society, there's not natural ways of belonging. You know, and, and I think in some societies there have been belonging certainly more to the earth, but belonging to each other. And I really feel like our suffering is that we forget our belonging to each other. And so in this society, in order to belong, and I mean to your family, belong to school, to your workplace, you have to jump over certain hoops. You have to meet certain criteria. It's not unconditional that you belong. You have to be beautiful or have a certain appearance. Your body has to be a certain way, you know, thin for women, you know, usually built up for guys, you know, and, and it goes on and on left brain intelligence. I think of all the children at school Fern who, you know, are given this message that they should have a certain kind of intelligence. And there's all these different kinds of intelligences. So these kids grow up feeling like they're stupid in some way. And, and then, and then it goes on that you have to be successful in certain ways. And then, it's most insidious that our societies give have these caste systems, racial caste system and class caste system. And if you're not up on that caste system, you know, if you're the non-dominant level of the caste system, then you get the message of being inferior. So, so many of us get hit in so many ways with feeling like we're just not enough. And, and I call it the trance of unworthiness, which I know you're aware of. Because when I talk to people, if I say, well, do you judge yourself too much? Most people will say, yeah, I do. But what we don't realize is how much that sense of not good enough, failing, falling short, flavors every part of our life. So it's really hard to feel intimate with another person if you feel like you're falling short, like you're not a good person, because you figure that they'll really know and reject you at some point. And it's hard to be creative and it's hard to, you know, take risks at work. And it's hard just to relax because we have this sense of something's wrong. And just to say one woman I know was with her mother when she was dying and her mother was in a coma and she came out of the coma. And, you know, some people come out of a coma and be very lucid for a bit. It was like that. Wow. And she looked this woman in the eye and she said, you know, all my life, I thought something was wrong with me. And then she closed her eyes and those were her last words. And, and for this woman and for when I heard this, it was like so poignant. Wow. That that people can go through days and decades and a lifetime with the underlying sense of something's wrong with me Mm. and how much that affects lives. And I feel like it's a long answer or response, but that more people now feel that deep sense of something's wrong with me than at any time that I've been alive because the level of stress and trauma is so high. 
and and the level of noise, I guess, because I love your new book so much, trusting the gold, and that phrase that you use, calling it this this trance, really hit me because it stopped me in my tracks, and I sat back and thought, yeah, how often do I hear that sort of that low level hum, that voice, that acerbic voice? berating me, you know, me berating me about the tiniest things. And it's so subconscious that, you know, you're right. I I don't think we do notice it. And for me, it definitely plays into that not being able to relax. I constantly think I should be doing something. I should be learning, achieving, progressing because of exactly what you've just said. I feel like something's wrong. And not only do we have all the things that you've just laid out in the sort of infrastructure we live in, you know, throughout society, but we've also got the media then mirroring that back at us constantly. So you can't ignore that. It's in our face all day, every day. So it seems to me that to have self-compassion, we have to rally against all of that. You know, what you just said is really, really powerful about the media because there's all this research now on what Instagram is doing to teens and how as soon as you look at Instagram, you're seeing pictures that people have selected of themselves that you're going to compare against. And it's devastating yeah. I mean, because we're social animals and we want to be included and accepted. And there's a constant comparing that's so insidious. So, yeah, we have a lot that we're going against. And I found, Fern, that when people can say what you said, which is, wow, I'm starting to see how it's like the air I'm breathing, that that inner voice saying, you know, something's wrong. When we start to see it, that's actually the beginning of getting, is kind of waking up from the trance, mm. is just getting it. Because I found for myself that when I started seeing it and seeing how much suffering is with that. It really happened for me, that kind of recognition when I was in college, I was on a hike with a friend because I remember really well. And she was telling me how she was becoming her own best friend and so on. And I thought to myself, Oh my gosh, I, you know, I'm the, that's the, I'm the furthest thing from my own best Mm. friend. You know, I am the harshest. I'm so harsh. I hated my body and I hated the way I was in relationships and I never was doing enough. And so that actually, when I started facing the pain of that, I actually really dedicated myself to, you know, loving myself into healing. And, And that really got me going on the spiritual path that I really wanted to learn how to quiet the voice of that inner critic and really hold my own being with a kind of tenderness. And what I found is that the kinder I've been to myself, the more my heart naturally includes others too. It's never just an inner loving. Yeah. I I think we underestimate how much self-loathing is really the root cause of probably nearly all of our problems in life or perceived problems. It's not the circumstance or the other person or the thing. It's our own self-loathing. And I can recognise that in my own life massively. And that's why I found this latest book so special because, you know, trusting that there, you know, you have this wonderful prayer that you open the book up with. May I trust my own goodness? We forget it's there. We forget that there's any goodness within us. And you know, you, you you retell that beautiful story, and I know it was in your previous book, Radical Compassion, as well, about how there was this beautiful Buddha that was found, and it was a sort of big cement-shaped Buddha, and then these cracks started appearing, and, and it was actually a beautiful big gold Buddha underneath, and we've all got that inside, but the cement is almost the sort of the fear and the confusion and everything we've picked up in our lives along the way. We're just covering over it on a daily basis, unless... We're willing, to, like you did in your life, to stop and go. No, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. You know, honor myself, even if it's not fully love yourself. Accept the feelings you have, and accept the problems or the perceived problems that you might have in life. And that's the first step. It's a jump to say, okay, I'm going to embrace my life yeah. just as I. You know, that's a jump. But what we can do is slow down. We can pause. 
and begin to say, okay, this is what's here right now. And can I meet just this moment with some kindness? And it's amazing that even the intention to be kind, even if you can't do it, <laughs> just, just in some way wishing that you could be kind begins to soften the heart. It's beautiful. And of course, I teach a lot just to put your hand on your heart and, and just send a message, send some message of kindness. It can be as simple as, you know, I'll sometimes say, it's okay, sweetheart, you know, it's just okay. Or, or it can be even simpler of, you know, just this moment. It's, you know, just be here for this moment. Mm. And I find if people can pause and ask themselves two really basic questions, which is, okay, so what's going on inside me right now? And then the second question is, can I be with this with kindness? Just this moment. That begins to turn the whole trance around. Yeah, because you talk about the resistance of feelings, because we're now even beating ourselves up about having feelings. You know, if we feel jealous or if we feel angry or if we feel down about something, we, we're not just feeling those emotions. We're going, oh, I shouldn't be feeling like this. I need to fix myself and to get out of this. And, and your uh, mantra that you use in these times is just let this belong. Let this feeling belongs. This belongs. It's okay. And I think that's a really wonderful first step as well. Rather than keep berating ourselves for just having human reactions and, and feeling emotions to say, no, no, this, this belongs. This is okay. I love that phrase. Fern. Me too. This belongs because, you know, I, I, and I do have like an image in my mind of an ocean with waves and that, you know, the waves belong and, and they're going to change. And, if we can remember, we're the ocean, you know, and the ocean's going to have waves. And really, every emotion is intelligent. We were wired to have emotions. It's part of our survival apparatus, yeah. you know, and everybody else has them too. So I find it helpful, first of all, when I'm feeling something like jealousy or something you don't want to feel, others experience this too. It's, it's programmed in, you know, and in the moments that we can let it belong, there's some space. Mm. It's even the word yes, just, just to say yes doesn't mean I like this. Yes means it's an honest acknowledgement. This is the reality of this moment. We find some space. We can end up kind of being with things with more balance and grace. Yeah, because when we're when we're not saying that, when we're not saying this feeling belongs, even if you don't like it, what are we expecting? That we're, we're, we're headed towards being sort of like a saint, like this sort of perfect being without feelings? Like surely that's unattainable for 99.9% .9 of us, bar maybe the few enlightened people out there. But of course we're going to feel these feelings. And I, I'm just really thinking at the moment while talking to you about the listeners that are have you know, engage with this episode, enjoying your words, who feel so entrenched in self-loathing and and sometimes these concepts that I love looking at and love studying and love trying out in life feel utterly unattainable. And I know because I've certainly been there in the past myself where I've thought there's no way I could like myself in this moment or due to this situation. What is the way out for people that feel like the self-loathing is just too powerful, too big, that there's no way they could ever have self-acceptance. Yeah, I'm really glad you're asking that because sometimes we can't hold ourselves with compassion. So but what we can do, there's a, there's a couple of steps, but the first step is try to step out of our thoughts a little bit and just breathe and quiet down a little bit, walk in nature, be with a friend, but quiet ourselves down. And then what we can do, and this takes, you know, just being still a little bit, is bring to mind someone that you trust and love that's a larger source of loving. You can bring your, your dog to mind. <laughs> you can bring a grandmother that's not alive to mind, or you can bring a best friend, or you can bring a spiritual figure to mind if you happen to be have that inclination. But bring some being to mind that is a loving, uh, loving wise being. And just imagine and sense what you wish they would be offering to you. 
imagine it. Look, imagine the look in their eye of welcoming you and appreciating you, the warmth. And imagine that there is loving energy coming from that being to you and actually let it bathe you. And it's a really powerful approach to healing. If you feel like you're unforgivable, imagine that being having that kind of mercy and love to help forgive you. Because, you know, we're relational beings and we got wounded in relationship. And we need to sometimes feel the relational field holding us in order to get healed. Mm, That's so beautiful. And right at the start of that, it it brought to mind a part in the book where you, you mentioned to really question your own thoughts, because we're having thousands of thoughts like every minute there's just we're bombarded with you know different thoughts some are completely useless some are irrelevant some are super mean but there's there's the the having the thought and then there's the believing the thought and and we're probably of the nature just on a general societal level that we believe everything that comes into our heads so if we think that we're as you just mentioned unforgivable or a bad person just on a sort of base level we take that to the next level and completely believe it. So it, there's there's some sort of amazing agency and liberation in just questioning, like, is that true, though? Is it true? That's exactly right. And I have a kind of mantra that I say to myself, which is simply, don't believe your thoughts. Don't mm. believe your thoughts. Yeah. Don't believe your thoughts. Because, you know, I have seen that, and especially when people start on a path of meditation, that the most powerful juncture where there's really some freedom is when people get that I am not my thoughts. I don't have to believe my thoughts. Mm. And they'll still keep coming. But they're one one of uh, my Tibetan teachers says they're real, but they're not true. And by that, it means they're real. They're actually happening. There's electronical activity in your brain and your body's having a reaction to them. But they're a representation of the reality that we're living in. They're not the truth. We got programmed to believe them. In other words, there were messages from our caretakers or our society, but they're not truth. And mm. so just to challenge it, like you say, is this true? Is it really true? And then open ourselves to something larger is such a gift. Yeah, it's a fun experiment because you realize just how much utter rubbish and nonsense you totally believe and and it's it's a fun experiment especially if it's the first time you've done it you're like wow there is there's a lot of lies floating around this head and as i said you know it's it's liberating to challenge them and to question them there's also another mantra that i love in trusting the gold and it's by a zen master do you pronounce his name sono or sono Sono, yeah. Sono. And he says, uh, this one has been game-changing for me. This is a woman, by the way. Oh, it's a woman? God, that is so... I'm just making assumptions that it's got to be a guy. That's not cool. Um, So Sono says, and this one has totally reframed so many situations in my life. Thank you for everything. I have no complaints. That is (laughs) powerful. You know, the story with that one is, um, I love that one too. There's something about gratitude that can so profoundly wash away a lot of our suffering. And my son was a complainer. Like he was, I called him King Kvetch, you know, because he just was, you know, he (laughs) just was whining and complaining. And I remember um, teaching him about Sono's, you know, mantra and, and, you know, I have no complaints whatsoever. Thank you for everything. And I remember once I was driving him to the dentist and we got into traffic and I just started cursing and being uptight. And he nudged me with his elbow and he said, Mama, thank you for everything. I have no complaints whatsoever. (laughs) And I'll never forget that smug little voice. (laughs) Oh, so good. And, you know, it's it's really helped me um, in the daily, but also with the past, to look at things that I saw as huge failures or problems previously, that I'm able to feel, you know, it's not always easy, but I am able to throw some gratitude at events that I I found very painful at the time, but have shaped my life in a way, you know, that you know I wouldn't be experiencing life as I am today if it wasn't for those painful experiences. And I think 
it probably takes, I don't know, a bit of time and effort and maybe thoughts to get to that place. But I'm definitely getting there with a lot of the, the sort of the big ones, the life hurdles that have thrown me. I am starting to to feel gratitude now. I guess, is it is it an easier mantra to use in hindsight for people that are going through extremely challenging times in this moment that might feel maybe unreachable to to use that statement? That can be a stretch. And what can become really more accessible is that we start intuiting. We have a wisdom in us that gets that the hard times really do teach us. They, They actually have us go to a deeper place of resources in order to make it through. And that includes the malignancies, that includes, you know, that where we feel our life is threatened and includes the loss of other people, the divorces, the failures. We know that as time goes on, they can often be the, the places that most taught us and grew us. In the midst of it, what can help is just a prayer, which is, please may this serve to awaken my deepest compassion, my wisdom, you know, in some way, knowing we're in the midst of it, can this serve in some way? Mm. And, and if we remember that, we actually become more available to be transformed. Yeah, because I guess then your focus shifts to the growth rather than the problem itself. That's you're... exactly right. And, yeah. and, and you're calling forth the wisdom that knows that, you know, it's the, the heat and the fire that creates the diamond. Something in us knows that. And so we just get a little more awake. And that, that um, prayer that I mentioned is part of the bodhisattva prayer, which is in the Buddhist tradition, the bodhisattvas, kind of the archetype of, of an evolved loving being. And that's the prayer of the bodhisattvas. May whatever arises, may all circumstances serve to awaken compassion, awaken mm. wisdom. So it's quite beautiful. It is. And again, I, I find it really liberating because you can't sit and dwell too much on the problem at hand because you're already thinking there has to be growth here. There's no way this is just for no reason. There has to be some growth, some learning. And I guess, again, maybe with hindsight, for me, certainly personally hindsight, I can see it sometimes as a gift. You know, that was that tough, tough, tough thing that happened was a gift because, you know, I'm completely different in my train of thoughts now and my perception of life. And, you know, that that is a gift in itself. I think we put so much importance on like the big moments of life that are celebratory and amazing all the successes you probably don't really learn as much in those times though no it's the suffering that actually makes us more compassionate it really is and then the question is when the tough times arise how do we actually navigate so that we can instead of um, resisting and getting into a knot and actually getting bitter, what actually allows us to learn and grow. And that's where the practices of presence come in. And there's a, a wonderful story of people bringing their suffering to this sage. And they, in order to visit him, they'd bring their deepest problems, but they had to go through all this wilderness and it was a long, arduous journey, but they'd get there and he'd swear them to silence. And then he'd say, I'm going to tell you something, you have to keep this secret. And then he'd ask them one question and that is, what are you unwilling to feel? And when we're in in a hard time, usually we're struggling because we're fighting. We don't want to feel something that's very difficult in us. And usually it's some deep fear or some deep loss. And it takes a lot of courage, but it's actually in the moments that we bravely open to just what's here in our bodies, that we actually feel it, that we can begin to transform, that we begin to start discovering the, the compassion and the space and, and the resilience that we need to move on. But in the moments we're fighting against feeling it, we're stuck. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
there's so many questions I have for you about compassion towards other people. And I found this super interesting in, um, in Trusting the Gold, where you say, to be kind, you must swerve regularly from your path. And uh, and it, it's good to hear that because I think often we might look around and go, God, it's so everybody else seems much more sort of benevolent than I am, or perhaps much more giving, or or you might not, but that might be one comparison you might make. But it takes effort and perhaps discipline to swerve from our everyday path, which we all know we're caught up in, which is a busy, noisy rush where we're trying to get somewhere. We're not ever really sure where, and we're trying to feel something you know like you say but like we belong uh, and we miss out on those moments where we could help another be of service etc so you have to always almost make a um a determined effort to swerve off of that every day it's really true we are usually on automatic trying to as you say get somewhere trying to feel more comfortable usually trying to check things off a list And when we do, others become unreal to us. They either become objects that can help us get what we want, or they become objects that are interfering, or they become neither, which makes them irrelevant, so we ignore them. And But they become what I call unreal others. And then we actually, you know, if if we feel they're blocking us, we can become violent. We can become we end up judging them and blaming them. I I remember one story of a lieutenant in the army and he was taking an anger management program because he was so reactive to people he considered getting in his way. And the program included mindfulness training and some compassion training, a lot of what we're talking about, Fern. And there was an, an, a time where he went to a supermarket and he was in a rush and he piled his stuff up because he had a lot to he had to get home and do a lot that night, piled up his cart, gets into the line. The woman in front of him has only one item. She has a child, but she's not in the express line. She's in his line. Not only that, she hands the child over to the clerk and they start ooing and eyeing. So this guy gets triggered. She has become an unreal other who's an obstacle. He's triggered. He goes, he starts internally going on his rant, you know, all the thoughts of who does she think she is? And I have all this stuff to do and so on. But then he remembers, oh yeah, mindfulness. He pauses, he starts bringing his attention inside, you know, breathing, noticing what is happening inside him, bringing some, you know, okay, it's okay, this belongs, you know. And then when he calms down, he's got a little more space. So he looks at the little girl, realizes she's cute. Those people leave, it's his turn with the clerk. And he says, you know, that little girl was adorable. And the clerk beams. She says, oh, that was my little girl. In fact, my husband was killed in Afghanistan last year, and my mom brings my little girl over twice a day, so we have a little visiting time. And for this man, you know, if he hadn't paused, if he had just stayed in his rant, believing his thoughts, and he would have never seen the humanity that was was there. And again, we have to swerve, we have to pause, we have to come back home inside ourselves, and then look more deeply, who's here, you know, and there's that beautiful question, Ruby Sales, a civil rights icon says, which is, you know, where does it hurt? And you don't necessarily ask it out loud, but you're with another person, and you, you sense, just like me, this person's got vulnerability, has fear, has losses, and there's that beautiful understanding that everyone you meet is struggling hard. You know, every one of us, we're all going to, we're all going to get sick and die and lose people. So what kind of a world might this be if we could just slow down and get off that busy automatic track and deepen our attention to each other? And I guess also like not take things so personally, you know, in that situation, he was almost taking that transaction in front of him personally, like this is ruining my day, it's affecting me, rather than it being 
a separate situation. And we do that all the time when we're having road rage or when we're, you know, in a disagreement with someone rather than honouring their situation problem as well as our own. We're, we're making it so personal. And I guess the irony is when you make the effort to swerve, that's when you do feel a sense of belonging and like you have arrived somewhere rather than what we're doing, which is rushing and trying to achieve to feel it. So we're just going the wrong way about trying to feel that sense of oneness and that sense of connection, I guess. That's a beautiful way to put it, Fern. It's really true. It's mm. the, our habitual way of trying to feel better doesn't work. We might get more things checked off the list, but we won't have a real feeling of connection or love or meaning in our lives. And, and as you say, when we're on our own track, trying to get ourselves more comfortable or, you know, defending ourselves or whatever, we lose sight of who's really here and what's really happening. We really don't see very clearly the reality of another. There's, there's a metaphor that helps me a lot on this, which is you imagine you're walking in the woods and you see a little dog by a tree and you go to pet it and then it lurches at you and its fangs are bared and, you know, it seems vicious. And you go from feeling friendly to anger and fear. But then you notice that the dog has a paw that's caught in a trap and you shift again. And, and you, you know, you might not get close to it because it could be dangerous, but your heart's open. And it's like you actually are including, oh, that being is hurting. And I think a lot of life is like that, that when we're in our reactivity, we, we forget what's going on for others. But when anybody behaves in a way that is causing harm, their leg's in a trap in some way. I mean, happy people don't violate each other, you know? And when we act in a way that we don't like, our leg is in a trap. And that this is really the grounds of compassion. Can we see the vulnerability? Because then we can forgive and hold with compassion and then figure out as wisely as possible how to deal with things. Yeah. I mean, again, liberating, looking at people that we have tricky dynamics with and saying their actions are coming from a place of pain. You know, again, right. you, you can't you can't take that too personally because you go, this is their stuff and there's only so much you can do. What when I was um, reading your book and, and sort of thinking um, and leading up to this chat today, I was thinking about the sort of balancing act that I guess a lot of us perhaps subconsciously think about. For me, I think about it quite a lot because I like to try and help other people and I like to try and swerve off my path and, and do things where I can. But I've had periods of my life where I've done that I don't know if there is so a thing as too much, but I've I've helped and I've given and I've given and I've probably lacked self-compassion in those moments because it's been all about serving and, and helping other people. And I think I'm still confused about how you get that balance, where that equilibrium lies between your own self-compassion and compassion for other people. Fantastic question. And a lot of people wonder about it. And my sense is and that, that a pathway that will keep informing is always come back to holding yourself kindly first. And I call it the U-turn, like whatever's going on with other people, before you try to be compassionate or forgiving towards another, you need to reconnect with yourself so you're coming from your most awake heart. Because it's actually not mature compassion or mature forgiveness of another if you haven't done that. You're not really hooked up inside, you know? So I call it a U-turn that when, when you're feeling whatever the reactivity is, first make the U-turn and bring the attention back towards yourself. Sense what's agitated, what's hurting, what's afraid. You know, put your hand on your heart, breathe, give yourself a message of kindness, come back home to yourself. And then you will actually respond with intelligence and kindness towards those around you. But it'll be much more informed. It'll be much clearer. Yeah, I, I guess that's where you really 
root into your authentic self and how that's right you're feeling it and and you'll swerve because you know it feels right rather than I should be swerving right now I'm sure I think I've got to be swerving now you know and then depleting yourself or doing things and feeling resentment after you know I've definitely been caught in that loop before and it's because I probably haven't been looking after myself at all so it's just a really interesting balance to, to try and achieve and There's some really interesting thoughts in your books around happiness as well. And in this latest book, you you sort of reframe happiness entirely compared to what society throws our way, certainly, by saying happiness arises out of simply being present in the moment, not grasping after anything, not wanting life to be uh, any different from what it is. And again, we are taught but certainly the information thrown at us daily is uh you're lacking you're getting it wrong you won't feel happy till you get the perfect job partner house whatever so again we've got to rally against all of that noise and maybe again you know the answer is just to get really quiet and to hook into well it's the gold isn't it that gold the goodness in there and go oh i'm i can feel happy right now as i look out the window It's peeing with rain outside. It's super grey and gross. I don't have to have this big moment or this big thing to feel happy. I have to rally against pop culture and what society is telling me and to just feel happy even if I'm crying with tears of sadness or a bit frustrated. There can be happiness in all of these moments. It's really true and it takes training. It actually takes a training of the heart and mind, what's called meditation, which doesn't have to be from a particular religion, but it does take practice to find that happiness in the present moment, to even find how to be more present. We are completely conditioned to what I sometimes call if only mind, you know, if only I could get go on that trip, or if only I could lose 20 pounds, or if only I could have that partner, if only I could get that recognition and success, then I'd be happy. And all the research in the world shows that we have a kind of happiness quotient. It's it's kind of a mix of biological, genetic, and you know, societal and so on. But most of us have a happiness quotient. And even when we get the thing we most thought we wanted, you know, we win the lottery on some level, we spike, but then we return to our our habitual level. And even when the worst things happen, you know, you know, an accident that that where we lose our sight or whatever it is, we have a downward spike and then we come back to that same level. What truly raises the happiness quotient is a deepening capacity for presence, for a kind of open-hearted presence. And if you look at the moments where you feel most deeply a sense of, of peace and happiness and openness, and let's say there's the, the beauty, you're, you're witnessing the beauty of a sunset or the night sky, or you see the gleam in a child's eyes, and that just opens your heart are just the moments where you're maybe padding quietly through a forest or whatever it is, what you'll find is that in the background, there's a kind of quiet presence that's there for what's happening. And it's that presence that actually is bringing the sense of, of deep contentment, joy, and happiness, not the thing itself. Mm, yeah, and um, we miss that point <laughs> every day. Every day we sort of get tricked into, no, it can't It can't be that simple. There has to be this big thing or whatever it might be. And I guess because we're living, you know, the, the sort of modern day velocity that we're, it's been normalised, you know, it's so normal now to be living at, at this speed. And also yeah. with this level of noise, this omnipresent outside opinion, judgment, news broadcasts, all again, very normal that we should be bombarded with this daily meditation is seemingly needed now more than ever as an antidote to that. That is the time out from that to, I guess, find the presence, but also question what we want to take on board, what we believe is helpful, what thoughts are true, what are not. It's coming back to that authenticity and that that knowing that is so easily clouded over because it's so noisy out there. Billions of dollars of money go into 
advertising that keeps us hooked on thinking it's something different, something more that we still need, that now is not okay. We want life different. It's very deep and we're restless. You know, when there's fear, we're restless. So it does take practice. And, and sometimes we'll practice arriving in presence with meditation. And what we'll arrive in are all the fears and the grief and the well, the unlived life, the parts of ourselves we haven't yet faced. And, and so it takes a kind of um, perseverance to know this is okay too. We just have to keep on opening to the layers that are here. There is a, a gold, a golden presence and love that's possible if we keep coming back right here. And it's in everyone because I think when you are you know, in the depths of despair or depression or anxiety, it's so easy to forget that there's that goodness there. And that's when we will be more susceptible to thinking, I do need fixing. I need to be fixed. I need things to be okay. And, you know, I've had huge periods of my life where I've thought, I need to be fixed and nothing will be possible until I am fixed. Who's going to fix me? How will I be fixed? And I love in the book that you say you just gave up on that. And and I think you say, you, you call it the efforting. I just gave up on the efforting of that, not doing that anymore. Well, I, I gave up on the efforting to try to be a better person, the self-improvement projects. What continues to be, it's not really effort, but a deep aspiration that energizes me is, you know, the story you told about the Golden Buddha, it just really speaks to me because we think we're the coverings. We think we're that, you know, it's plaster clay coverings we forget the gold. And that's the suffering is that we really forget who we are. We forget the awareness that's here, the creativity, the basic intelligence that our heart really wants to love without holding back. You know, we forget that. And so it's really quite a path of remembering that goodness. And as you said, it's not just in us, it's, it's in everyone. I, I often think about, uh, Einstein saying that the biggest question that we really have to reflect on and respond to in ourselves is, is this world a friendly place? Is the universe a friendly place? And by friendly, it doesn't mean that, you know, one creature is not going to kill another for food or something like that. It means is there some intrinsic love, some basic benevolence that logically you can't prove something but I'm very pragmatic about the spiritual path. And I know for myself, when I keep leaning towards looking for the goodness in myself and others, I become a much more happy person. My life has a lot more grace in it. And there also is just increasingly wonderful science. Like I think of the science on trees right now that is showing that instead of thinking of trees as, oh, they're competing for the light, that, yes, that happens. But even more profound is that these root systems and the fungal networks that connect them, there's huge cooperation between trees, you know, that, that allow them to flourish. And with humans, our greatest leap in terms of human evolution was becoming increasingly collaborative. That's really what allows us to thrive. So that when you and I perceive each other and sense, wow, deep down, Fern and I, well, it's the same awareness looking through these eyes, and it's the same heart and the same longing that that really, and we and we're here actually to support and bring that forward in each other, not to prove that oh, I'm in some way better or feel bad because I'm not as such and such. Then we flourish. And that is so much what the world needs right now is that that movement towards holding hands and collaborating and not seeing the other as some bad enemy out there. And there are ways of forging that. You know, we're we're in such a time of in silos of different realities and past systems getting really rigidified in some ways. I mean, there's just it's there's such a pain in that. And in the moments that we can see past the mask, you know, past the color of a person or the religion, and really see that gold, we bring it forward. 
We bring it forward. So we need to remind mm. each other of the gold. We do. And, and, and that's that's where we'll feel that sense of belonging, not beating the person next to us, not being the best, 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 not being on the pedestal above everyone else, which has been heavily promoted in modern day culture, that if you are the best, you will feel a sense of belonging, which we know doesn't equate because we've all watched probably tons of Netflix documentaries where someone's become the best sporting person and then feels terrible afterwards. You know, we've we've all seen that. So that sense of belonging will be from, as you've just said, that beautiful collaboration. And I really, I really hope that this episode of the podcast gives everybody listening I guess the permission to see their own gold because sometimes you need someone else to say it. Oh, it's in there. It's in there. Like you can celebrate your own gold because it's much easier to listen to somebody else say that rather than to really just believe it on your own. So I really hope that everybody listening, myself included, takes time today to really like notice that goodness inside and to to celebrate that. I have the same wish. And I know we need each other to remind us because we all forget. So remember your own gold and then bring to mind someone that you care about and sense what you appreciate about them and let them know. It's the greatest gift we can give each other. Yeah, that's a gorgeous thing to do. It's it's a beautiful gift to give each other. And, and you know, this you know, you've done that for me today. I feel absolutely buzzing having spoken to you and I'm so thrilled to have had you on the podcast. It's been, um, you know, a, a wish of mine for a long time, being a follower and reading your books and listening to your podcast. So I honestly can't thank you enough for your time today. And, um, and I hope we get to do it again another time, Tara. Thank you so much. Fern, it's a total delight. Lovely to be with you. Oh, Tara, I have so much gratitude for you. That chat helped me out personally so much. And I'm just so grateful for your time. What an absolute honour. Like I said, I've honestly been longing to have that conversation for so long. Trusting the Gold is Tara's beautiful new book, and it's available now in hardback. She's also the author of the best-selling books, Radical Acceptance, which I highly recommend, Radical Compassion, Beautiful, and True Refuge, all of which you absolutely must read. Don't wait for someone else to know it's your gold. You are gold. Do come and have a chat with us over on Instagram, at happyplaceofficial, and let us know about the goodness inside of you. Before you leave your podcast app, make sure you're following Happy Place for free so you never miss an episode. Massive thanks again to Tara, to the producer Anushka Tate and to you for just being bloody wonderful. I'll see you soon. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.